Hello, and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the toxic films of the VHS era. Tonight, we are talking about the 1981 mutant monster, definitely not classic, Jackie Kong film, The Being. My name is Luke, and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, if you thought last episode's anti-capitalist metaphor was a little ham-fisted, then prepare yourself for a metaphor exposed to some gnarly toxic waste that comes out swinging with giant prize-winning hogs for hands. As of this broadcast, you can find 1981's The Being on YouTube for free or anywhere else. This film's web presence is about as ubiquitous as our title creature's appearances behind every corner, pothole, and shelf in Pottsville, Idaho. And then you, like us, can be woke to recognize that the real monster isn't the homicidal mutant tearing through the town. It's that it's really Monsanto. The real monster is Monsanto. Well, speaking of the ubiquity of the being, um, I like how towards the end of this film, they try to rationalize it by saying there's a system of tunnels. But this has to be the fastest nuclear monster of all time. I really thought the twist was that there was just going to be beings, plural, and that never happened. No, this movie is not that conscious of logic. You've just got to roll with it. But with that being said, this movie gets a lot of hate. Like a lot of people hate this movie or just think it's downright forgettable. I cannot view it objectively. I have an inexplicable love for it. So like first blush, would you tell people to watch this movie? I would only tell die-hard monster film fans to watch this one. All right. I think that's fair. So this was your first time watch, right? Yes. And only my second Jackie Kong film. Well, she only made three. So you don't have that much more to go. But this was her first one. Let me, let me tell you about my history with this movie. And I might have said this before on the podcast, but so I was raised in a Southern Baptist family attending a Southern Baptist school, and I was not allowed to watch any real horror movies and definitely not any R-rated films. And, and yet, from a very young age, I was inexplicably obsessed and, and drawn to the horror section of the video store and like looking at the lurid box art. And I think this is an experience that like a lot of our listeners can identify with. But in my childhood video store, I distinctly remember only three movies in the horror section. I mean, there were a bunch, but I remember three. There was The Being, and right next to it, there was Burial Ground, another box that I love. And then right behind those 
was the big box Monterey release of the Grim Reaper, also known as Anthropophagus. And so those are the three that stick out in my mind. And on my 11th birthday, I convinced my mom to let me rent a horror movie for my friends and I to watch. And the only stipulation was that it couldn't be rated R. Well, The Being was the only movie in the horror section that does not have an R rating on the box. This is definitely an R-rated movie, but it doesn't say it's rated R in the box. So I got away with renting it. And I sat down with a group of all my friends from my Southern Baptist school while my mom like made cookies or something in the kitchen. And we watched this like gory, boob-filled, R-rated monster fest. And afterwards, one of my friends was like, I need to go home because I'm not allowed to watch movies like this. And I think we traumatized him. But this was scary to me as a kid. Even at my birthday party, surrounded by a bunch of friends, like I had just never seen a real horror movie before. Oh, yeah. As a kid, this movie would be pretty terrifying. Yeah. I mean, it, and, and this is still true today, but so the VHS release of this movie is incredibly dark. Like, it's incredibly hard to see a lot of it. I, I don't think that's specific to the VHS release. I think this is probably one of the darkest films I have ever seen, and I watched it on the internet. Yeah, so I've seen the one on YouTube, and it's slightly better than the VHS. But yeah, this is a really poorly lit movie. And you can kind of tell that Jackie Kong had no film experience when she made this. Anyway, when I was a kid, that actually kind of added to the scariness because you could only catch like glimpses of the being and it just looked slimy and dark and you couldn't tell exactly what was happening to people. And I don't know, it made it scarier. But now I think it's fair to say that it just adds to the frustration. From from what I understand, her then-husband, who is the actor that portrayed the sheriff... Mortimer. Yes, in this film. Uh, he was a film producer and bankrolled the film based on outlines, you know, character designs script that she provided him saying hey this is this is a film idea i have and that's that's all it took yeah well in addition to getting her husband to bankroll this thing which i think had a budget of like 4.5 million somehow she managed to jam pack this thing with like great actors who are slumming it this movie has three Oscar winners in it. I can like, probably pick out one of them. Who are the other two? All right. So one is Martin Landau, who plays the sleazy scientist who's covering for the nuclear facility. Yeah, I figured he was one of them. But who are the other two? Um, Jose Ferrer, who plays the mayor, the sort of corrupt mayor. Uh-huh. And um, the third is Dorothy Malone, who who was in like a lot of the um, old uh, film noir movies. But anyway, she plays Marge Smith. 
who I think is the mother that's looking for her missing child. Yeah, that's right. And then honorable mention for Ruth Buzzy, who had won multiple Emmys, and she plays uh, the mayor's wife. I didn't recognize anyone in this film, but I probably don't watch a lot of, uh, you know, Academy Award winning Oscar bait. I know Martin Landau, like he's in a ton of stuff. And I know Jose Ferrer, but I didn't recognize anyone else. Anyway, so you've seen this and Blood Diner. After seeing, so this was her first movie. Blood Diner was her, her second, I think. Third. Um, third. So after watching Blood Diner, was this what you would have expected? No. In fact, uh, as the movie kept progressing, I was wondering just how campy it was intentionally supposed to be. But I do think it is intentionally made how it turned out. I think it, it, it the, what Jackie Kong wanted and what the producers wanted is exactly what happened in this film. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm I'm reading her wrong, but based on interviews I've seen with Jackie Kong, she one intended for this to be a serious horror film with like environmental messaging and oh, no. two and two she thinks it's really effective. Like she thinks she made a great movie. Hmm. All right. Well, I kind of watched this in with the impression that it was uh, not meant to be taken too seriously. I think that is the best possible way to watch it. If I hadn't seen Blood Diner, I wouldn't have known to take that approach. You know, I have an inexplicable love for this movie, and I remember as a child being terrified of it. But now when I watch it, I laugh a whole bunch. So I hope that this um, will be a fun podcast. Yeah, I... Man, that's really surprising to me. What? Because I really thought that this film was uh, was supposed to be like a, a, a drive-in monster popcorn flick where they just shoved in like a an like environmental messaging right into it that's actually relevant to the real world. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's. I just think uh, that. Jackie Kong thinks she succeeded in making a scary movie. But I, I wouldn't deny like the the drive-in monster movie label. I mean, scaring children is kind of an accomplishment. Sure. I mean, I'm glad I'm glad she made this movie. Uh it had I've gone through a period in my life where it scared me, which is a wonderful experience. And now I get to laugh at it. And that's also a wonderful experience. But we are doing this to kick off our spooky season just because my birthday is right next to Halloween. So I've always associated this with Halloween and I watch it every year. Will this now be a new Halloween classic for you? You know, I don't really have any Halloween classics per se. I the, the closest tradition I have for Halloween is that I try to pick a theme for the month and i stick with it so for example uh, there'd be a month full of films involving evil children or a month of films involving 
any kind of possession, not necessarily demonic. Uh, one month I did a uh, like found footage films, which was awful, totally awful. One of the worst ideas I've ever had. Hardly anything I watched was worth talking about. I and, I know the genre has its defenders, but I can't watch found footage films. As someone who does not have motion sickness, that is not a limitation for me. But uh, it's still extremely hard to find good ones. And I, I don't think we'll ever cover one on this podcast because they're all too modern. Yeah, I mean, the only one I can think of that would have been released on VHS is the Blair Witch Project. Hmm. Other than that, um, yeah, I, I'm starting to think maybe this month I could try to uh, try to see if I can find enough films to fill a environmental horror niche. So not necessarily, you know, films just involving, you know, eco horror. You know, that's just like animals killing people. I mean, horrors or terrors as a direct result of human pollution or interference in the environment so i, I think mean, that's th what i'm gonna make my project this month there are a ton of them so i can definitely give you some recommendations and and this is how i kicked it off with the being well this is a perfect kickoff and and with to kick us off uh can we play the trailer and then we'll get into the story you want to talk about the box oh yeah that is good so I have the HBO Canon video release of this, although I really want the Astral video release, the Canadian release. There's one sitting on eBay right now for $300, but yeah, I'm not paying that. So if anyone wants to give me a birthday present uh, and snag that for me, um, otherwise I'll make do with this one. Uh, it's a cheap tape. It's really easy to get. And the back says this. An evil being lurks in the local disposal dump, attacking all in its wake. The being, a genetic freak driven psychotic by radiation waste, mutilates and decapitates. The being leaves no survivors. In the small, peaceful town of Pottsville, Idaho, the residents do not know that their town harbors this monster responsible for the countless grisly murders. They soon realize this when the being begins its hunt for the next victims. Now the townspeople understand that the ultimate terror has taken heinous form as the being moves towards its most terrifying rampage. Wow. I really like that every time the back says the being, it's capitalized. The and being. You know, in the credits, it's labeled as the monster. Yeah, well, so the, the title, the being, was given to it in like post-production um, right before it was released. It was originally called Easter Sunday. And... It, uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it labeled the Pottsville Terror. So I'm not sure what the original title was supposed to be. So what is the front of the box? Is it the same as the poster? Yes. Yeah, you know, this movie does a great job of obscuring the creature while still remaining, um, you know, making the monster scenes relevant, I would say, until the very end. When you finally get the full reveal. But here on the box, it's just front and center. 
Yeah, I mean, it basically looks like a like a raw, skinless penis monster. At least yeah, that's my take on it. Cyclops. So yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, before we play this trailer, I just want to say the intro has a narration to it, and if there were not credits before this narration, I would have thought that I was watching a trailer for the film. And it turns out that narration is actually the trailer for the film. So is the is the trailer the the narration that is before the movie, like the actual movie? Yes. Perfect. I'm so glad we're going to hear this because I really want to talk about it. Here we go. In the distance, the town of Pottsville, Idaho. Dr. Jones, isn't the dumping of radioactive waste into the aquifer contaminating our drinking water? Exactly what do you mean by contamination? A small town, not much different from any other Main Street USA. This is the kind of contamination we really have to worry about. It's everybody's responsibility to keep pornography out of this state. Strange and unexplained events are occurring. You say your friend was pulled out of the car by some guy in a monster suit. What in the hell is this stuff? Some people are missing. Well, the only explanation I have is some sort of genetic freak. But why is it so intelligent? It's conceivable it can use a higher percentage of its brain. At the same time, be completely psychotic. The ultimate terror has taken form. And Pottsville, Idaho will never be the same. must conclude that dumping nuclear waste into the aquifer does not and will not affect the water. So I'm not sure if that's an original trailer or something that was made for one of the re-releases of this film. I don't really think this movie has had any re-releases. I mean, it got released on DVD, but it's just a VHS rip. Hmm. But so the the movie starts off with that narration and with but there's a little bit more of it. At one point after he says some people are missing, he says among them a little child. And I unironically think that that introduction, that narration is actually creepy as hell. I think it's really effective. Really? Really. Like, maybe this like, is my... We're talking about adult Luke, not just Southern Baptist child Luke. Yes, but, you know, it's it's similar to me to, like, the narration that opens the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which also creeps me out. Um, something about that, like acting as if it's a documentary. It's not that I actually think it's a documentary. It just, it gives it a certain sound, I guess, aura that, that yeah, is really effective for me. I didn't really interpret this as sort of um, 
you know, a, 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 as a this is a true story, you know, intro. No, but it sounds it was, like that, right? I just figured it was like a, you know, just a way to open your film without. I mean, actually, I didn't even really think it was necessary. I felt like the the story kind of tells itself. The setting is pretty self-explanatory. It's definitely not necessary, and I'm not saying that it gels with what comes after. All I'm saying is that that 30 seconds with the storm clouds in the distance is really effective for me even now. Mm. And it's combined with the music, right? So over the opening credits, at first there's no music. And then we hear just the sounds of like nature and then thunder and the being pops up on the screen and then the music kicks in. And I think the music is probably the most effective part of this movie. It, it's it's orchestral, but it's minimalist. There's like screeching violin. It's a very like avant contemporary, not as much as what we talked about last week, but there is a lot of contemporary music that sounds this way and it's really effective to me. I don't think I really paid much attention to the music in this film, but uh, the sound design uh, just jumped out at me constantly because of uh, the noises the creature makes compared to what's going on in the environment. I think that was really well done. Yeah, I had actually never thought about it before. But as I was watching this time and taking notes, I kept thinking that. And I was watching the VHS, but I was like, the sound design is amazing in this. And the music is interspersed with clips of a radio DJ, which in theory I like. It could have been done well, but this DJ's dialogue is atrociously bad. I mean, aren't aren't most DJs atrociously bad on am radio i guess but at the beginning he's like welcome to pottsville idaho the spud capital <laughs> like does anybody say that do you think people in idaho call themselves the spud capital i don't know i mean I, I i know for those of you who are not in america um everyone sees idaho as the potato state but i don't know if that image exists in idaho outside of maybe tourist traps like i can imagine there's you're on the highway going through idaho and there's just like a ton of like come see the largest potato the most grotesque potato our potatoes that look like you know u.s presidents just you can buy like potato shaped salt and pepper shakers like if you were local in idaho like you just you don't even eat potatoes every day you don't even think about it it's not even part of your life I've actually never been to Idaho. I've been to most states, but I've never felt any need to go to Idaho. I mean, I can tell you in Florida, not everything is orange, you know, themed. Yeah. Or or Disney themed, believe it there or not. There is a lot, though. There's a, Especially if you're driving on the interstate, there's a lot of, you know, Florida-grown orange gas stations along the way. Yeah, so I, I'd imagine it's exactly the same as the Florida orange situation where it's mostly a PR thing. All right. So it, it, it's just my nostalgia speaking. You do not think the first like five minutes of this movie are incredibly eerie. No, but maybe that's also due to the fact that I had to watch this film in the middle of the afternoon in almost broad daylight. (laughs) 
all right, yeah, I guess that could hamper it. But I, I don't know. Even then, I don't think the the voiceover would have done much for me. Well, I am glad that it wasn't pervasive through the entire film. I was oh, expecting that. Oh, yeah, me too. I, I'm glad that it's just that snippet at the beginning. But anyway, once all this is over, we see a, a boy running through a junkyard. Or we kind of see it because it's super dark. And he gets into a car and it, it starts... <laughs> like, I didn't expect this junkyard car to start, but it does. There's a lot of convenient things in this script. Just accept it. They're just trying to tell a story. I didn't think it was supposed to be a serious story, but let's pretend it's not supposed to be. I mean, I think Jackie Kong was a professional wrestler before she made this. And she had never written a screenplay or directed a movie. So... There's some amateur action here. I mean, hey, this script is still better than like half the shit J.J. Abrams writes. Oh, I would watch this any day before like, uh, I don't know, uh, what Super 8? Is that what that monster movie was he made? God, that film's awful. I never watched it. I was watching The Being instead. Yeah, no, The Being is better than <laughs> Super 8. Anyway, the boy is, is driving the car, but the being is in the back seat and all I could see on my dark VHS was like slimy arms grabbing around the kid and then pulling his head off and so blood not, spurts out. So it's not in the back seat. It jumps on top of the car while he's driving away. It then puts its arms through the top of the car and grabs his head. Well, what I can discern is all the sound effects, um, which are really cool. And once his, his head is pulled off, the car just, you know, goes out of control and runs into the side of a building. Uh, just a minor detail. After the kid's head is ripped off, there's a scene where his arms are still flailing around. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, okay. So I, this is a tangent. Um, maybe I'll cut it out, but. Uh, I saw there's an Instagram account I follow and I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but he mostly posts stories about like 1900s to 1930s um, freaks who traveled in sideshows. And he, he posted this story the other day with photos. Um, and I looked it up and apparently this is legit of this, this chicken that the farmer, this was early 1900s, the farmer tried to behead it, but missed its brainstem, but cut off the rest of its head, and it was still alive. And so instead of like finishing the job, he kept it and took care of it, and he would just feed it with an eyedropper and squeeze it down the neck. And the chicken survived this way for like three months, during which time he toured the country in sideshows and made like an incredible amount of money. But then there was a sad story about the headless chicken dying during the night in a hotel room. And there was some argument about what, what ultimately killed it. That sounds like some shit PETA would make up for a propaganda like a campaign 
I mean, I looked up apparently the town where this guy was from that once a year they have a headless chicken day and they have a statue of it. I don't know. Maybe oh, this man, is I all bullshit. You're tell me like, you know, the people in the town try to recreate it. <laughs> no, may, maybe, maybe this is an elaborate internet hoax and I'm an idiot for falling for it, but it just came to mind. So in the movie, um, the police show up and their conclusion is that the car lost control and there's no driver. But at this point, they don't notice like blood or slime anywhere. Like, I yeah, thought this they, was very odd. They think someone just took the junkyard vehicle for a joyride. But in defense of the police, there's no blood in the car. This was the cleanest decapitation of all time. And uh, apparently they don't notice the giant holes in the, in the top of the car where the arms went through to rip the kid's head off. Well, later when um, our sheriff shows up, Mortimer, what's his last name? Because it's it's equally weird. Uh, I just realized I don't know anybody's name in this movie. There's really no reason to. So The sheriff. The, the sheriff is Mortimer Lutz. So he's referred to as a warden at some point. I don't know. Anyway, he shows up and it's like, um, a, it's like what a baron would use to bring law to his to his kingdom. A warden. Yeah. Does anyone say that in modern day? I don't think so. <laughs> okay. Maybe like the prison warden. But... Maybe it's a Louisiana thing. I don't know. They like to use old timey things. This is Idaho. Yeah, before we disparage what do Idaho what do people from Idaho call themselves? Idahoans? Idahoans? That's good enough for me. Potato people? <laughs> Mr. and Mitch. No, it's not Mr. Potato Head anymore. No. It's it's just Potato Head. Just Potato Head. Right. All right. So, uh, but when Mortimer shows up later, he does see like slime in the car. And he says, This car's seen a lot of action. Pigs. As if people were just like partying in it. Yeah, let's talk about this sh this sheriff for a moment and his actor. Let's just get this intro out of the way now. All right. Th this man has the charisma of a seaweed salad. He kind of everyone in this movie does. I, I think he's the worst though. He he sees like these uh, later on in the film. He'll see these horrible, horrific, violent scenes caused by the being and his. His emotional range is just so stunted. Yeah, he, he's really bad. So this is Jackie Kong's husband. He produced this thing. And I think he had produced porn before this. Yeah, like porn comedies. And um, we talked briefly before about the golden age of porn in, in prior episodes. He apparently also produced stuff that was um, at the at the start of that era. All right, so his name, his name is Bill Osco, and he acted in a total of five movies. One other one was Night Patrol, also directed by Jackie Kong. But in both of these, The Being and Night Patrol, he's credited as Rex Coltrane. That's a pretty solid early 80s porn name. Yeah, he, the first movie he ever acted in 
was Alice in Wonderland, an X-rated musical fantasy, which wow. I which I think was um, I want to say it was put out by Charles Band, but I might be wrong. Anyway, the the character he played was named or is credited as Mad Hatter Stunt Penis. So do you, you do you think he acted the exact same way in those films, like the same amount of enthusiasm? I mean, since it says stunt penis, what I'm assuming is that whoever played the Mad Hatter did not want to show his penis. And so this guy showed his instead. Mad props, I guess. I That's my guess. All right. Apparently, he is also known as Rex. What's my real name, Coltrane? And Johnny Commander. I could be crazy, but I think even in the credits for this film, the being, he has a different name in the credits, too. Rex Coltrane. Is that what it is? Yeah. I'm, I'm, no, I mean, okay, so here, there's his actual name. There's the title montage at the end where they show the actors and their names at the bottom and then there's a credits roll at the end i'm saying i'm pretty sure the name is different in the credits roll and the 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 end slideshow with all the actors no I'm yeah like i didn't positive. uh i didn't notice that but my favorite of his aliases is janus alucard Stelloff. Wow, that's fancy. <laughs> One of his aliases is just Miss, Mr. Osco. No first name. I mean, is it really an alias if it's your last name? I don't know. Anyway, back to the movie. Yeah. So there's him, and then he has like a racist cop sidekick. We see him arresting uh, this guy who's supposed to be Mexican. And he is picking him up for fishing without a license. But he says, I got him for possession. And when he's pulling him in the police station, he's saying, you know how many tacos you're going to have to sell to, to pay for this? And he calls him Jose and Pepper Belly. Is the movie trying to condemn his racism or is it just accepted? I don't know. Maybe it's an indictment of American law enforcement. This I don't is a know, serious film, right? <laughs> well, there are some things in Blood Diner that could be construed as racist as well. It's not like a politically correct film. No, I, I def, that's probably where we can leave it right there, that this film is not politically correct. All right, that's fair. So while they're in the police station, we see a TV interview and this is Martin Landau's character who's being interviewed. His name is Carson Jones. And he's defending the company that's dumping toxic waste in the aquifer. I love that the company thinks that this is like a story that can actually be sold to the public, that it's okay to dump toxic waste in the aquifer. I cannot think of any specific examples, but shit like this does happen all over the country. It's just not this egregious in terms of, uh, yeah, we're just going to dump a bunch of water in an aquifer 
Normally I'm, it's like, here's a pig processing plant that just happens to be in a river and they're not supposed to be discarding anything that's environmentally hazardous, but hey, you know, whatever, here's a bunch of pig shit. And then everyone in the town gets sick. Yeah, I mean, what I was shocked by was not that it was happening in the movie. It's one, that it was so blatant that they're literally dumping toxic waste and that they think the public will accept that story. Well, they're accepting it because the level of radiation is not high enough to be of any concern. Yeah, so Carson Jones is on the TV and he's he's running a um a Geiger counter over the water and then over his watch and he's saying that his watch contains more radiation than the glass of water and since he's willing to drink it everyone should conclude that it's safe. So I don't know if people would have bought this but that's what he says. This is a really common trope when it comes to PR and red and uh, radiation exposure, where you have a spokesperson dr- drinking water that they claim is from a source that was exposed to radiation, and it's okay, everybody. Look, I'm doing it right now. Like just recently, when um, uh, I mean, as of this year, the Fukushima reactor, the reactor that went critical because of the tsunami has the Japanese government recently announced that they are going to be releasing all of the irradiated water that they were using to cool the reactor, the wastewater from cooling the reactor back into the ocean. And part of that press conference involved a Japanese government official going up on a podium and drinking a glass of you know said water to prove that you know it's not really as harmful as everyone's making it out to be i want to say something similar happened in in russia as well well we will see if stories of japanese and russian beings uh start to come hmm. come about but anyway in in the movie we then switch to the drive-in and that we get a movie within a movie and on the the movie screen there's a naked girl being attacked by some kind of monster um do you like when there's movies within movies it's all right i mean as long as it's you know tastefully done but this scene in particular is what made me think that this film wasn't supposed to be taken as you know just a popcorn monster flick yeah, because, it actually Yeah. It, so this movie was made first, but the story and characters in this movie are strikingly similar to the 1980s remake of The Blob. I have yet to see that. Oh my god, it's one of the best horror movies of all time. It's on my queue. I can watch it whenever. I just haven't seen it yet. I think it's probably my top five favorite horror movies from the 80s. Wow. It's, it's, def- I think it's right up there with the holy trinity of 80s movie remakes. You got The Blob, The Fly, and The Thing. But the Body Blob- Snatchers remake was 70s, wasn't it? What's that? 
Was the Body Snatchers remake late 70s? Yes. Oh, okay. So otherwise but, I'd say toss the fly off for that. Oh, God, no. I think the fly is way better than that movie. Really? Oh. Uh, hmm. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, there's a... Oh, so there's like the old drive-in trick in movies where there's a guy getting killed as he makes out with his girlfriend, but no one hears his screams because there's screams in the movie. So the being can covertly kill people. And then there's two guys smoking weed, uh, and they see a monster, but they think it's an employee in a costume trying to make the movie scarier. Um, but then the guy just gets pulled out of his car window. And his friend just finishes watching the movie. Yeah, he he just thinks that it was a like publicity stunt until he calls the police later. What do you think of like these first few deaths that we get? I was kind of surprised they were happening so sudden and so rapid fire. It's pretty direct. Uh, this... We also left out uh, before this, it eats a tow truck driver. Yeah, I, I don't think... I don't think this movie has any sense of pacing or like building suspense. It, it's it's uh, practice seems to be just throw the being at you as much as possible, albeit obscured in darkness. It, it's how did exactly did the being get into the first car with the couple that was that was fucking in the front seat? I have no idea. So I don't know if you could tell on your VHS, but while they were distracted with each other, there's this really cool effect where all of the AC vents, the dials, all the little nooks and crannies on the car's uh, dashboard, the control panel, just start leaking this fluid. Oh, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, so from that scene, I kind of thought that there was going to be this consistent superpower where this thing could just turn into goop at will and then reconstitute itself for sneak attacks what happens a couple times so it happens there and there's another scene where it uses well seemingly uses that ability to escape a completely locked freezer but outside of that it's never brought up again um no it's uh when the there's a point where mortimer gets home and there's a puddle of goo in his bed. Yeah, but the monster is under his bed. Yeah, well, I thought the goo on the bed was evidence that that's how he, like, got in there. Like, he dripped through the ceiling or something. Oh, no, I just thought he, uh, you know, gooed up the bed. But we'll get there. Yeah, anyway, so... Um, I think it's the next scene. <laughs> Yeah, we, we see Mortimer at home, and he pulls the blanket back, and there's all that melted goo. Um, but then it's under the bed, and it starts to chase him. He manages to run on the other side of a train as it's passing and escapes. But now he knows that there's a being afoot. The police officer leaves his gun in the house because he just got home from work and dropped it. And then full-blown runs out of his residence, down the street, and then in front of an oncoming train. And I just have to say that that stunt was done in real time. They really got some stuntman to run in front of a train as it was coming across the tracks. And it did not look sped up at all. 
maybe Rex Coltrane did it for himself. He played a stunt penis after all. Stunt penis, stunt man. Sure. It's like the stunt lifestyle. Yeah. So we find out from the radio that five people are missing. And it says that they're missing because of the storm. <laughs> like, this was not a hurricane. It was just like a thunderstorm. They're talking about the thunderstorm during the credits, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. Maybe thunder is really serious in Idaho. So we, we see an Easter egg hunt with a bunch of kids. And there's one like really little girl. Um, this is Jackie Kong's daughter, actually. And she's reaching around for an egg inside of this hole. And we see something in the hole. I guess it's the being, but it's not very clear. It's gurgling and making noises like the being. There, there's a lead up to this a little bit. Because it's Easter Sunday, right? This is an Easter egg hunt being put on by a church. And so you have all these kids dressed up to the nines for, for Sunday, for church Sunday. And then every time this like three-year-old girl bends down to pick up an egg, some kid like two years older just comes by and snatches it. And <laughs> yeah, this continues like four times before uh, she sees the most hidden, most valuable prize winning egg that just happens to be right next to... Uh, the being sleeping hole. Yeah. So this scene is like lifted from the scene in Frankenstein where the monster is playing with the little girl, but the prize for the, the prize winning egg is a bike. And when she finds it, one of the other kids is like, shit, she can't ride a bike. <laughs> I really like the special effects of the, the, the thing in the hole. Like, it's just a puppet, but I thought it looked really cool. It it looks suitably creepy. Like, uh, I mean, it doesn't look like it's person-sized. Like, the, the, thing, the, the being, when you finally see it, is a little bit above person size, but it's still a cool effect. Yeah, so the being looks, like, bigger than a person, but somehow it's played by an actor who's a little person. He was one of the munchkins in The Wizard of Oz. Hmm. His name is Jerry Marin. I still think the thing in the hole was a puppet, but oh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they actually got him in the hole. Yeah, I don't know. He also did stunts for The Prophecy, so I wonder if he played the bear monster. Oh, that bear monster was huge. Well, don't judge a book by its cover. That yeah. monster... That monster was a little person on the inside. Well, if you if you are looking for more environmental horror, prophecy is a, is a good follow-up for this film. So we see the mayor who is like straight out of Jaws and does not want any word leaking out. He doesn't believe that there's a monster anyway. But Martin Landau is going to investigate. And now we get introduced to my favorite subplot. The mayor's wife is the head of a committee that's, quote, stamping out smut in the community. And they're protesting a new building that they think might become a massage parlor, 
which might be erotic because somebody saw someone carrying a massage table into it. And the um, Mortimer says, how do you know what a massage table looks like? Aren't you being a little stupid? Yeah, just very direct. Yeah. And and that's that in his his monotone. I, I was way too emotive just now. <laughs> yeah, calm down, man. I'm 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 trying to remain calm. Um it's hard when I, I hear about smut invading small towns. So we have this mayor who is has some kind of financial incentive with potato farming in the city. And he's afraid that public knowledge of any problem caused by the toxic waste, no matter how small, could interfere with his potato profits or just the stifling of the potato industry in general for the town. And yeah, so at, one point, at one point Mortimer says, potatoes, around here that means big money. <laughs> That's the kind of award-winning dialogue you get from Jackie Kong. So we have, on one hand, this uh, propaganda scientist who keeps, like, you know, espousing how harmless all this shit be. And then on the other hand, the mayor's wife is running the Smut Council, trying to draw public attention to the horrors of pornography that could corrupt the... the <laughs> this is they could corrupt the society in their small town. Mm -hmm. I think there's even a scene where they work in conjunction, sweeping the street uh, symbolically in front of the um, accused massage parlor. Yeah, we're we're right gonna get there because the cameras because I I like that scene, so we're gonna get there. Um, but Mortimer likes this this waitress, and by the way. This is a this is a relationship that was straight up lifted by the Blob remake. Like straight lifted. This exact same scenario. So he I mean police officers and and other night workers kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, but he in the Blob, he literally tells the waitress, "Don't walk home. Wait for me to come pick you up because I'm worried about you walking home." which is exactly what Mortimer tells the woman in this movie. I, I think that's just the, the pickup strategy to get in there. Yeah, I don't know. It's well, it used to, to engage in both cases. They seem to be sincere. So we see the being going after some people. There is a woman in her nightgown, a guy fishing. So, yeah, the, the being is after everybody. This is where the racist cop calls the fishing guy a crazy taco vendor. Mortimer pulls someone over, and then when he gets back in his car, the being is in his back seat and shoves its hand through the cop's chest. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I think that was probably like the best practical effect in the whole film. It I liked when like the, directly on camera. I liked when the boy's head got pulled off. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of in the shadows, but it was cool. It was done cool well, too. I mean, one of the strongest features of the being is all of the practical monster and gore effects. If it didn't have that, I don't know, maybe we wouldn't be talking about this film. 
Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know if it's intentional or not, but there's a sense of humor in this movie that I think is really fun. Like in the next scene, the the radio DJ says that he's going to play Dudley's favorite song and Dudley was the cop that just got killed. Like that's I don't know if that would really happen in a small town, but it, it was funny to me. That seemed really believable to me. Did it? Yeah, for a small town, definitely. Well, I got a kick out of it. <laughs> but in a scene straight out of the Trump era, Martin Landau is being uh, interviewed by a reporter, and she is asking him questions, and he says that the bigger threat, bigger than nuclear waste, is bad reporting. And he's going to go to the dump site and he thinks it's so safe, he wants to prove to the media that he by camping there. So he invites the reporter to come join him camping while he runs his tests. This he just seems come up on the offer, though. No, she said she might, but she doesn't. They showed up. They got their their thirty second bit, and then they got the fuck out. This is all really just an excuse to get him there at night because like in no sensible world do you uh solve this problem by camping out where you're gonna run the test no but he's a pr man yeah essentially i mean from a pr standpoint he's doing the right thing then we get perhaps the strangest scene in this movie it's black and white and i guess this is a dream yes like a really surreal dream the 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 police officer was watching the news and fell asleep. And this is the dream. Yeah. So he and Martin Landau are in the car and the being is, is banging on the car windshield and then airplane or the airplane window. Um, and then the mayor's wife flies away on a broomstick. It's really weird. It's kind of a foreshadowing for what's, the rest of the movie is going to be you have yeah. you know the scientist and the sheriff in the cockpit things start going wrong the being is climbing on the outside opens the the one of the doors on the cabin pulls out the scientist and unfortunately the sheriff cannot maintain maintain control of the aircraft cannot control the scene Loses the scientist, probably loses the plane, and sees the mayor's wife as a witch flying by on a broom. And she says something ominous before he wakes up. Well, I think this seems really bizarre and out of place, but I also kind of like the way it's filmed. Like, I like the look of it. It's weird that it's in black and white. Have, have Do you dream in black and white? I actually, uh, I actually have before. Like I do sometimes. No, I've, I don't think I've ever dreamt in black and white. And it got me thinking a little bit, though. Like, do you think people from like the the baby boomer generation occasionally dream in black and white because all the media back then was black and white? I'm sure some do. I mean, if I have black and white dreams, then surely uh, they have even more reason to. Like sometimes if. Like, let's say, uh, I mean, I haven't had time like this in a while, but let's say I'm 
playing a, a particular type of video game like a lot for like a day, like say like six hours or something like that, there's a chance that my dreams will take on the perspective of that media, whether it's like first person, you know, third person, whatever. So I don't think it's it would be out of the ordinary for someone who watches black and white films, black and white television, especially if that's the only thing that's around to you know, dream in black and white. I have extremely long, extremely complex, lucid dreams that like, I don't know how this works, but I'll, I'll be, I'll be asleep for like 30 minutes, but it would take me some, it would take me two hours to explain the dream to somebody because it's so long. Um, but anyway, I, I, my point is my dreams are not usually linked with like whatever's happened that day, at least in no way I can understand. A, A lot of times they're about, like they're not even about me they're about totally different characters yeah i have a lot of dreams like that too where you're more of like a a witness or a camera angle or something but again that might be because of uh, you know how much media we consume maybe well anyway once once mortimer wakes up he goes to pick up the waitress and he's mad because she left without him but they run into each other on the street and he opens the car door and the being launches out of like an alleyway and into the car and he slams the car door on it it was aiming for the waitress but he but stunt cock pulled her out of the way just in time i i thought this special effect actually looked really shitty it it looked like they just threw some doll or puppet into the car maybe the same puppet that they used for the hole (laughs) maybe um Anyway, they decide to lock themselves in the diner, uh, and the being is trying to reach its hand in. I do like the way when we just see the being's hand, it like it's slimy and it it, it flops around real quickly, like it's really erratic moving. It I, I like this effect. The waitress just like disappears. Sometimes the 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 difference between a bad monster costume and a good monster costume is some uh, moisture or slime applied to a bad monster costume. Yeah, and the bad lighting doesn't hurt because we can't see if the special effects bad. But yeah, but so yeah, the, the waitress goes into the back. She's gone. Yeah, she just like instantly disappears, and Mortimer goes looking for her, and. He finally sees the being, but the waitress is behind the cooler door and she slams it shut and locks the the being in there. And we just see his, his penis head like bobbing up and down behind the glass. It looks really dumb. Yeah, not sure how the being ended up in the freezer, but waitress was in the right place at the right time. Yeah. So they call the mayor. And he shows up to see the being, but all that's left is a puddle. And and this is where the waitress asks why the mayor's trying to keep this quiet. And Mortimer says, potatoes. Around here, that means big money. This scene also um, has a very common theme in this film, which are fake jump scares. This is another reason why I thought this film wasn't made with any serious intent, like to be taken seriously. Because there are countless scenes in this film where you're expecting a jump scare, but it's not. It's something mundane. Yeah. Or something that just 
it was something that just sounds like it could be the being, but it turns out to be like construction equipment. And this waitress disappearing is probably just uh, the best of all of these, where you actually think she is taken by something, but it turns out no, she just went into the back and hid behind a door. Uh, I mean, in so this movie was shortly after Alien, and I I think pretty clearly influenced by Alien. But they do those kinds of fake jump scares in Alien too. They're just much more effective. And of course, both movies have a scene where a cat jumps out instead of a monster. Oh, of course. Yeah, I was wondering if in in this movie, I was wondering if that was directly lifted from Alien. I was actually trying to think of what the first movie to ever do that would have been. Because it's pretty ubiquitous in horror movies for the cat to jump out. Let's see. The first time I remember seeing it is Alien. Hmm. Unfortunately, I don't think this is something a Google search is gonna is gonna be able to immediately answer. Yeah, I, I if it wasn't Alien, uh, then I think Alien is what's responsible for like launching it into the the necessary checklist of eighties horror. So they're leaving. They're going to get answers, but they see a being footprint on the sidewalk, and so they start to run. And then we we switch points of view to a group of guys on the street and they're complaining about the massage parlor that's opening. And so they decide that they're going to sneak in and burn the place down. And, and as they're going in the front, the one guy says, it even smells like smut in here. Like, what does that mean? I don't know. I, I was... Thinking, you know, they were going to say something like, well, good thing sin is a strong accelerate before they burn down the building. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen. I, I wouldn't have been the surprised. To, to burn down a building. No, but uh, one of the guys finds like a Playboy magazine and he says, I knew it. <laughs> but then he sits down and starts to read it. And then pockets it. And then his friend says, we're going to get erected. And I don't know if he means erected or arrested or if we're supposed to think it's like a pun. We're going to get erected. All right. Anyway, that made me laugh. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't remember that. Anyway, we, we see the being get a couple of them. Um, and I'm not the third one. We just see a tentacle like come out of nowhere. I actually think it's the being's tongue. Yes, it's later revealed to be the tongue, but it it we don't find out for like another 20 minutes. We also see a woman like wandering outside calling for Michael. But at this point, we have no idea who this woman is, right? I do not remember when her first scene came up in the film. I would have to I'd have to skim the YouTube video real quick. No, it, it, like it's. It's just weird because we're never really told her story, but a couple of times we see her and we find out or we surmise that she's looking for her son, who was like the first person to disappear. And well, it's a little more complicated than that. Yeah. Is the is the insinuation that her son became the being? The way this character is introduced is very strange. Throughout this whole film, 
we are just exposed to a machine gun barrage of being murders and abductions. And this scene starts out no different, where you have this odd-looking woman dressed up in like a like a sweatsuit onesie at night, uh, coming back to her house. Kids, pranksters, wait for her to go inside and then smear unidentifiable shit on her door and run off. She gets sad, goes upstairs, and goes to sleep. So naturally, the being comes in, um, commits a home invasion by opening her front door, goes up into a children's room where there's a crib, and after it knocks over a bunch of furniture, the camera goes back to the woman who hears the commotion, runs in to see what's going on, but the being is gone, just completely gone. So did the being just steal a baby? Did it just come by for a visit? Well, we are led to believe through further scenes that, that what was this kid's name? Michael? Yeah. That Michael went down to the toxic waste dump at some point and uh, became the being after much exposure to the wastes. And he lived at the house. That was his room. And he was coming back to see his room but then ran away before the mom came out. Yeah, it's, it is it is really strange because at first I thought that he was the little boy at the beginning who we saw the head pulled off. No, but yeah, it's, it's heavily insinuated that, that her son is the being. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how long he was exposed to the waste or if this was like an ongoing thing. Maybe he played down there after school every day whatever but the rest of the scene the rest of the movie has all the scenes featuring this woman are just her walking around town really sad looking for her son so we go back to martin landau's character and he meets up with mortimer and the waitress and he says he's discovered a network of tunnels that all lead back to this warehouse and he's figured out that the being is light sensitive and completely breaks down in the light. And so it sleeps in the warehouse during the day. And this is where its tongue launches out to get Martin Landau, but the waitress chops it off. And they all run back to the car, but the being is in the car. And his what's left of his tongue, I guess, tries to get Landau again. So they all escape. They go get guns. And Mortimer wants the waitress to stay at the police station. She wants to go with him. He says it's too dangerous. So he locks her in the jail cell. But eventually another cop shows up and lets her out. And this is when she goes out to talk to the the woman who's looking for her missing son. Landau is telling Mortimer that it's been mutated by radiation. And this is where it, there's the line in the trailer that it's smart because it can use a larger portion of its brain, but it's also psychotic. Lines of dialogue like this are so ridiculous 
that I have trouble thinking that it was meant seriously. Jackie Kong would disagree. I don't know. Maybe I need to watch like more of her talking about this movie, but I know I've seen her say that like it had a, a good environmental message and it was scary, something like that. I, I mean, yeah, the, the environmental message is real. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the obviously the damage that environmental pollution causes isn't like creating, you know, homicidal mutants from children. But, you know, if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have a movie. But the the backdrop is, you know, pretty real world. It's just uh, especially obvious. Yeah. So they're driving around and the being is holding on to the car. Cars are like the being's favorite place to get somebody. And they're shooting at it, but it's not working. So eventually they both jump out of the car and Mortimer shoots the car so that it explodes because, you know, that's how cars worked in the 80s. Yo, it's a good thing they bailed out of that SUV because that thing was a death trap if that's all it took to make it explode. Yeah. Well, it, this I, they do the same thing in Phantasm, which, by the way, we're going to talk about next week. Get cars in the 70s and 80s just exploded very easily. So this is the scene where the cat jumps out at them in the warehouse, and they're about to leave, but Landau says they can't leave the cat behind, so they go back for it. Would you go back for your cat in this situation? That is a really hard question. I think yeah. I probably would have just taken the cat with me the first time. Yeah, I but think so. I felt that so. strongly about it. I like I am really close to my cat. I have a Sphinx cat. They're very attached to their people. But um, if I was being confronted by the being and I wasn't laughing at it, I think I would run. We finally get a good look at the being at this point. It kills Martin Landau and it's like chomping on Mortimer's leg. But this is where we see that it basically looks like a big, bloody, pulsating penis creature with this, one eye that like wiggles around wildly this climax is very drawn out it is this is it, it seems like it's like 20 minutes that they're just like sneaking around the the warehouse it, trying it to find the longer being. i i think it's longer than that but what's bizarre is that you have the the scientist and the police officer the or the sheriff they enter this warehouse they immediately separate which is the worst idea in the world and then once the sheriff is isolated he decides to barricade himself inside the storeroom to confront the monster mono imano with no firearms However, he has the strongest weapon available, which is plot armor. <laughs> this is a monster that has like one shot, instantly killed, shown no mercy to anything it's touched the entire film. But once this giant murderous, you know, killing machine reaches the sheriff, all it does is push him away into a shelf like three or four times. I kind of missed exactly how, but he kills it. The The being is no more. Well, we think it's no more. Also, the cat is a casualty in this scene. So they really just brought the cat right into the firing line of the monster anyway. Yeah, that 
the cat was doomed from the start. There's a point where the sheriff is hiding from the monster and he climbs up onto a shelf to scout and then Pete unstealthily jumps down and his foot lands right through a nail on the floor and he makes no noise because that is how important it is to be quiet in this room despite the fact that he just like jumped uh, like two feet off the shelf to, to get to the ground. He just casually pulls the his foot off the nail and keeps walking. Hey, if you have the power of will to keep quiet, it's a smart thing to do. The sheriff is looking for any strategy to gain an advantage. And apparently, in whatever this place is storing, they have cyanide gas just laying around. It's like a chemistry lab. He puts on a gas mask and starts flooding the entire room with cyanide gas. I guess trying to kill the monster. But it doesn't really have any effect because it's stalking him unperturbed <laughs> for the rest of the climax. He then tries to just escape. He decides this is a bad idea. I shouldn't have locked myself in here with it. And uh, tries to climb a, a chain. Like a... a uh, uh, meant to move cargo to the ceiling, but he can't quite make it to the top and falls back down to the being. He gets cornered next to a shelf full of jars of sulfuric acid and is there where he finds his uh, solution, where he just starts heaving jars of acid at the being, which stuns it just enough for him to hack it to death with a fire axe. And inexplicably, after the being is on the floor and dead, it explodes like a video game boss from the NES era. It just blows up for no reason. Yeah, this is very protracted. It's very dark. Oh, and on top of all that, at some point, the monster rips his gas mask off. And yet he doesn't die from all the gas being spread throughout the... The, the storehouse so I really don't know what that gas was supposed to be doing he's Mortimer Lutz he's resilient well yeah I mean in the end stunt cock triumphs hey so let me wrap this up we we hear a radio broadcast that the police say there's no more danger but we see a hand digging out of the ground and that would have been like a normal 80s movie ending. But then we get a series of on-screen captions that tell us the fate of all the characters like they do in like docudramas. Or like war movies. Yeah. So we find out that Virginia Lane was never found. I don't even know who that was. <laughs> I was going to ask you that. Yeah, I really don't know who that is in the movie. Well, let's, let's see if we find it real quick because now I want to know. So that is oh, the, that's the mayor's wife. Yes, we skipped over that scene. So Virginia Lane was never found. Virginia Lane was the mayor's wife 
who was killed in one of the many, many action scenes featuring uh, the being's murderous rampage. But you can see how significant of a character she was that we can't remember her. Well, not her name. I, I yeah. don't remember anybody's name in this film. Well, Martin Landau, Garson Jones, um, his body was donated to medical science. The mayor was the first potato farmer in the White House. Uh, Lori, the, the waitress, is still waitressing. Marge is looking for her son, Michael, in Modesto, California. And Mortimer moved to Hollywood and became a stuntman. I think this is the weirdest thing about this movie. That That is the weirdest thing. The, the list of, of uh, fates that it gives us for each of these characters. Well, and then if that wasn't enough, it's followed up with a slideshow featuring headshots of everyone that was that played a major role in the film yeah it's that thing they did in a lot of 80s and 90s like comedies especially where we see a brief moment of each actor from the film and then it freeze frames on their face and their actor's name pops up which I don't is know what film started this but i i know war serious war films do it too and predator which is a serious war film also he- did this do you like it when movies do this? I liked it in Predator. I feel like you need a really epic movie to pull it off, though. See, I'm the opposite. I like it in comedies. I, I think it's funny because you're kind of saying, like, look at these people that make you that made you laugh. Like, the reality of the movie doesn't matter. But when the movie's trying to tell, like, a real story, then I think just drawing attention to the actors at the very end of it is kind of defeatist. Like, I'm not a fan. Oh, it's kind of like a in memoriam slideshow because usually, well, at least in, in war films, most of those characters aren't alive by the end, or they're not arriving mentally intact. As yeah, the I never, role. I never thought about it like that. But anyway, yeah, I like it in comedies, but I don't like it in in serious movies. I think it's just weird and out of place in this movie. Agreed. All right, well, this is running long. Let's give our final thoughts and a rating out of four. So you're saying there's there's a lot of environmental horror films. Uh, do you think this hits top ten environmental horror films? Like by my personal standards or by an objective standard? Uh, I don't know, either. Like are there ten relevant, like, relevant environmental horror films? I'd say there's easily ten that are better films than this okay um well i mean of what i've seen it's in top 10 but i don't even know if i've seen five <laughs> like i can only think of like a handful of environmental horror films I've, I've ever seen if i think about it i can definitely come up with a list well the being isn't in my top 10 of movie monster designs but i, I still think the practical effects are really awesome um as the as I mentioned already, the heart ripping scene was was really cool in the patrol car, or the the monster close ups during the climax. You know, you were talking about how we get to see like the twitching, like Cyclops penis eye of the being in the the storehouse. I I thought that was a really cool effect. 
it looked like an actual living thing moving its eye around. I don't know, maybe it was. Maybe it was like a real eye, like sandwiched inside um inside like a giant monster mask or something. But really, like the even if the monster suit looked fake, the the amount of like moisture and slime applied to it really made it look and I'd imagine feel like something that actually didn't have skin. I mean, I was under the impression that that this was made from the start as some kind of uh, drive-through monster popcorn flick. And I thought the movie within the movie of the naked woman getting assaulted by a cockroach monster was, you know, referential to that. Uh, but according to Luke, this is supposed to be taken 100% seriously. Uh, you know, I was going to say, like, one of the film's greatest strengths is that the script is self-aware and, and doesn't take itself too seriously, despite the messaging being a very important warning in the real world that, you know, corporations and their cronies, their politicians that they have in their pockets will lie to the general public to protect profits and will manipulate the media and local issues to... Um, confuse, divert, and weaken public awareness and action that they can take. But allegedly this was all this was all very serious and this is serious throughout. Because I'd imagine, although this is probably a problem that still exists, it was uh, probably more of a problem back in the day where the avenues available to produce a film were not as open as they are today and certainly there are studios that have vested business interests or shareholder interests that would not make it in their financial best interests to push films with certain messaging and so i was thinking well maybe this is a way to to maybe push a serious uh warning about um, you know, the, the horrors of corporate America, but you're throwing it through a movie that wouldn't be taken seriously at face value. So you can get away with pushing that message in. It wouldn't be like you're making a few good men or something that's actually um, sh showing a bad image of the United States military. Like for those that don't know, a few good men did not have uh, the support of the U.S. government as they were making that film because it doesn't exactly paint uh, the Marines in the best light. Um, Jarhead is another film that comes to mind with, this, with the same similar theming. Um, but yeah, apparently this was supposed to be, all be serious. I'm really surprised. Maybe we got to fact check that and make sure, make sure that that was actually the case. But um, I really feel like you need to watch this film as something that's not super serious as something that's not trying to overreach for some uh, you know, preachy, self-important platform. I certainly didn't get that feeling when I watched it. Uh, maybe that's because I watched Blood Diner months before this, and Blood Diner is uh, akin to theming more like uh, killer clouds from outer space. It's way more obvious, and I thought this was probably just the more subtle version of that. So I really think you can you can forgive the writing cliches and conveniences 
just for the sake of watching a traditional all-American monster story. And although you don't get to see the monster until the end, you have plenty of awesome practical effect action sequences to really keep your attention till the end. Um, I know this film wasn't very well received when it first came out, but I think nowadays it's a solid two-star film. I, I would recommend this for anybody who has a vested interest in monster films, especially monster films with a ton of practical effects. So I don't really know what Jackie Kong's intention with this movie was. Like I said, I've heard interviews where she seems to suggest that it's meant to be taken seriously. Um, but there are elements of it that seem really self-aware, like like the mayor, for example. I don't know if he's a ripoff of the mayor in Jaws or if he's supposed to be kind of a parody. Like, not sure. But I was Googling it real quick, and um, I just... There, here's an interview with Jackie Kong, and here's a couple things she says. She says, My films have lasted because they give the audience that what the F did I just see factor. She says that her words of wisdom for people who want to make movies is to come up with a good story and don't be afraid to shake things up. Don't play it safe. Tell the story you want to tell. And the interviewer asked if she has any influences. And she says, not one, but many of Robert Downey Sr.'s counterculture subversive films, Todd Browning's Freaks, Yodorowsky's El Topo, all Kurosawa, and I really love the weird dialogue in Russ Meyer's Faster Pussycat, Kill, Kill. So that's an odd combination of resources or influences that I don't necessarily see reflected in the being. Um, but look, I, I don't think this is a good movie. I probably think that objectively it's a worse movie than Leland says. Like the special effects are cool, but they're almost impossible to see in the darkness of this movie. Um, the the acting is is wooden. It's not necessarily bad but especially from our lead, there's just no personality. Some of the dialogue is uh, like laughably atrociously bad, um, whether it's trying to be funny or not. But with that said, I laughed a lot and had a lot of fun watching it. And I've seen this movie countless times and I'm not bored of it. And this is probably like completely personal, but I saw this when I was a kid. I have a really fond memory of that. It, it terrified me as a kid, and I still get a weird eeriness from it, especially in the beginning with the voiceover narration and the storm clouds in the distance. I think the music is really effective. I'm not going to explain this well, and I don't know that it's a strength, but there's a weird quality of this movie where there's points where people are talking, but it's almost like we're not supposed to be hearing them talking. It's like we're a fly on the wall. I don't know what gives me that impression, but it adds to an almost documentary feel to me. But again, that might be totally my imagination. Uh, the plotting in this movie is weird. There's just kill after kill after kill with no concept of suspense. And the climax is like, 
drawn out way too long. But with all of that said, I inexplicably like it, even unironically as an adult. I think it's fun and funny and creepy in moments. This is probably not an accurate score, but I'm going to give it three stars. Unlike Leland, I don't think this film is that good. Three stars. I, I think that if I was being fair, like if I had not seen this movie when I was a child and like treasured it throughout my life, I would probably give it like one. Yeah. But, but that personal bias is there. You would and pick so, the child over this? I think the child is a better movie than this. Oh, like objectively no speaking. Yeah. No, not even close. But I really respect the child. I, I think there's like some real artistry going on there. There's some artistry going on here, too. It's just like a brutal slaughterhouse art. Uh, I think this is schlock, which is fine. I like schlock. This is a podcast about schlock. <laughs> but um, I think that's what this is. Hmm. That does not describe next week's movie. So next week, as I said earlier, we were watching one of my all-time favorite movies. Also somewhat inexplicable, but... Uh, We'll talk about that next week. We are watching Phantasm from 1979, I believe. The Don Coscarelli, then independent, but now fairly well-known uh, horror film. And Leland, you have seen uh, Phantasm before. I have. I don't know if Phantasm is supposed to take place in the fall, but for some reason it it reminds me of fall it feels like it's in the fall and it's another movie that i just associate with halloween and like watch every year well everyone's wearing winter clothes and the main set is a funeral home with a very prominent graveyard it seems like fall to me yeah all right great so until next week you can follow us on instagram at video.store.nightmares where I post everything that we do. And wherever you're listening to us, please rate, review, and subscribe. That would help us out. Uh, Leland, do you have any last words this week? You know, for anyone studying film, if you're looking for a good thesis, really look into the origins of the cat fake jump scare. I thought you were going to recommend that people look into like the origins of Jackie Kong's career or the origins of the being. I actually think any of those would be fascinating. I would read about any of those things. Yeah, but cats. I want to know what movie had a cat jump out first instead of a monster. I'm going to put my money on Alien, but maybe I'm giving Ridley Scott too much credit. And as always, thank you for your continued support. All right, and we will talk to you next week. Goodbye.